and open to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 for our study tonight. Hebrews chapter 12. And um, I guess a couple of weeks ago we were looking at chapter 12 verses 3 through to 11, verse 11. And in those verses we learned about God's chastening care for his children. Truth is that you... Um, When you have an invested interest in someone, you go to extra lengths and extra pains to make sure that um, they're not just looked after, but that they they prosper, they grow. And someone under your watch care, you'd want to make sure that they're going to uh, turn out better in the end compared to when the beginning, when you first took them under your wing. And when we got born again into God's family, he became our father our heavenly father. And as a father, he cares for us and loves us. And uh, when we get out of line, which happens, then he corrects us. And so we have this verse, verse five. um, Paul writes in the middle of the verse, my son despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It's a quote out of Proverbs chapter 3. And the truth is that God only does that for his children. He doesn't chasten the devil's children. He'll punish them in hell, but he'll not chasten them the way he does for his own children that are born again. Verse 7, Now, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. I believe that what he's telling us here is that as we go through it properly as we respond properly to the chastening that uh, God sort of um, gives a special favor. We, We enter into the family business and it's as if it's like father and son or father and daughter business, the family business, the Lord's business. He deals with us as with sons. Um, So uh, he finishes in verse 11 saying that no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. And that's very true that um, whenever we're chastened, it's um, it's tough. It's tough on us. And I think it's also tough on the father in heaven. I don't think he takes any great gleeful delight. Uh, I think that it's uh, with sorrow that he has to chasten us. I think that uh, in a, a godly family, it's the same way where the parents, if they have to chasten the child, they do so with a heavy heart. But knowing that the end thereof is worth it. And that's, um, that's what Paul says here. Afterward, it yieldeth. See that in verse 11? It says the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Well, now tonight, we're, we're going to move on uh, to verses uh, 12 to 17. And actually, what we have here is a four-point sermon for Christian living by the Apostle Paul. Interesting. So after the, the chastening, then we get more into the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. And so we've got a, a, about a four-point uh, sermon here. We're going to look at that now. So let's begin with prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for all of your mercy and grace. We thank you, Lord, for chastening us when we go astray. Because if you didn't do that, we'd only end up being more clever devils. Thank you that you love us more than that. 
and that you look past our sin and you see our need. And at the right time and in the right way, you bring the right kind of chastening that will produce godliness and Christ-likeness in us. We thank you for that. Please help us tonight to learn from this sermon of the Apostle Paul's and to uh, make application in our hearts tonight. Help us to grow in our faith. Please receive our, our love and our worship, for it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right. The Sermon for Christian Living, point number one. Strengthen up your limbs. Strengthen up your limbs. Look at verse 12. He says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You see that? So when he says, wherefore, this is a word that speaks of a consequence that comes after the the previous uh, action. Therefore, the word therefore refers to like a logical conclusion to an argument. Wherefore refers to a a consequence. And consequences can be good. They're not always negative. Uh, Sometimes they're positive. And so I I look upon this not as a a negative consequence, but as more of a positive one. He's trying to exhort us and encourage us. Wherefore? So it's a consequence in the light of God's chastening of his children. You know, we can get discouraged. You know that when God chastens us, sometimes we can get sort of droopy in our Christian lives. And so this is why I think he, he tells us to lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. I think that it's a... It's a, a, a positive consequence encouraging us to, uh, to not be uh, too discouraged and not too droopy. So he talks about hands, he talks about knees, and um, I think that uh, the hands refer to the doing part of us, what we put our hand to, the things we do, that's important. And the knees, of course, part of the going part of us, where we go in life, but if you put them together... It really does reflect your prayer life, doesn't it? Your hands and your knees. It's pretty hard to to look at that and not properly think that there's a time we need to get on our knees. We need to lift our hands toward God as uh, uh, beggars, if you will, to the the king. And uh, that, I think, is a a good application to our, our prayer time with God. And by the way, can I ask how your daily prayer is coming? Do you uh, have and maintain a daily time in the mornings with uh, reading God's word and getting on your knees and praying? Because we need to strengthen our limbs. And it's amazing how prayer will do that. And when you're going through discouraging time, it ought to be a natural reaction uh, to bend the knee and lift the hand to God in prayer. Now, that's point number one. Uh, So strengthen up your limbs. Point number two is straighten up your paths. Straighten up your paths. Look at verse 13. He says, and make straight paths for your feet. Well, he spoke about the hands. He spoke about the knees. And now he talks about the feet. I imagine that if we go in the wrong direction, we'll never end up in the right place. What do you think of that wisdom? If we keep going the wrong way, how can we possibly end up in the right destination? How do, you, how do you make straight paths for your feet? Well, it's going to require being honest with the Scriptures. It's going to require the Scriptures, in fact. It's going to require that you and I spend time in the Scriptures. Say, but I'm not sure I know where to begin. Begin in the book of Psalms. Do Psalms and Proverbs. You know, you, you can live all, your whole life in those two books, I think. 
But definitely read the Bible through because all of it is good. It's all part of God's plan for our lives. The whole scriptures, it's all by inspiration of God. But in order to make straight paths for our feet, it's going to require truth. The truth of the scriptures and the determination of our wills. Meaning this, that when you read the scriptures and God makes a truth known to you, you must make a decision with your will to follow that truth. When God says, this is the way, walk ye in it. The old devil says, don't do that. The flesh says, oh, I'm too tired. I don't want to do that. It's going to require a decision of your will to, to, to obey the scriptures. That's what it comes down to. So he says here, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. And I believe that wrong paths will quickly turn lame feet astray. So the paths are very important. And not just for you, but for those that you influence as well. Uh, If you're a parent and you have children, either young or growing up, the direction that you go in life will help set the tone and set the way for the children. Whether they're still in the growing up process or whether they're already growing up, it's very important. Because there's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, lame feet and knees out there. Uh, I think that we must first be on the right path ourselves if we're going to influence our friends and our family. How can we possibly influence our children to walk toward the Lord if we're walking toward the world? So our paths have to be right. And I suppose for every one proper path, and when you think of it, God's path is the one proper path. But for for that path, the devil's probably got a million or more different pathways, some of them big paved highways that people go. Going the Lord's way is not always the easy paved road. And we have to understand that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that broad is the way that leadeth to what? Destruction, right. And then he says uh, narrow or straight. Now, the word straight there, S-T-R-A-I-T, means kind of hemmed in and sometimes difficult with potholes. It doesn't mean straight as an arrow. It can mean like bendy or crooked a little bit, but that's the way the Lord has chosen. Why? Why does it have to be that way? Because it calls upon us to live by faith. If you're going to go God's way, it's going to have to be done by faith. And it's not always the easy path. Sometimes it'd be far easier just to stay at home, put your feet up. Sometimes it's far easier just to do something else rather than open the Bible and read it. But God's ways are always best, but they're done by faith. So faith is so important. So we're to, uh, um, says here to straighten up our paths, point number two. So we're to make straight paths for our feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. He says, but let it rather be healed. And obviously that healing has to take place in our lives in order for us to help others to also be, to be healed, if you will. Now we're talking healed through prayer and spiritual strength. So Paul is giving us sermon for Christian living. Point one is straighten up your limbs. Point two is, I'm sorry, strengthen up your limbs. Point two is straighten up your paths. Point three is sweeten up your souls. Sweeten up your souls. It's in verse 14. He says here to follow peace with all men. Now, not every Christian does that. 
In fact, you know that not everyone in the world does that. Um, it's so much easier to lash out at people or snip or snap back at them. They step on your toes, so you kick them in a shin. That's the way of the world. It's not always easy to follow peace with all men. But um, we're to follow peace with all men, be they saved or be they unsaved. Now, that's very important. And we're going to take a look at the book of Romans chapter 12. So keep your finger there in Hebrews 12. Go back to Romans 12. And we're going to look at verse 18. Romans 12, verse 18. Now, would you help me tonight and read this out loud, this verse 18? That means you're going to have to look at the Scripture. Give you a moment there. Everybody ready? Anybody not ready? Romans 12, verse 18. Okay, let's read it out loud now. If it be possible... As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. So you see, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you. So um, that's going to take some doing sometimes. Some people are easy to get along with. Some people are not so easy to get along with. Maybe you've got a family member that's just not so easy to get along with. Maybe there's someone at work that's just really not so easy to get along with. Maybe it's your boss. And uh, you think you've got the, the boss from H-E-L-L. That's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> terrible, terrible way of putting it. But you get the idea. You've just got the worst boss in the world. And no one gets along with him or her. But uh, as much as is possible, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably. Now, sometimes that's going to require extra grace. You're going to have to get on your knees first thing in the morning and pray to God for grace and peace before you get in the car or get on the bus and go to work or go to school or meet that family member. And look also, please, at verse 21. Read that out loud with me, too. Here we go. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, that's our marching orders. It's not every Christian who will do that. And we're told to overcome evil with good. You know what a lot of Christians do is they overcome evil with a cold shoulder. Oh, if that's the way you want to be, I'm never going to talk to you again. I'm just going to forget you. I'm just going to wash you right out of my life. That's not what the scriptures here are saying. The scriptures are saying that we're to overcome evil with good. Some people say fight fire with fire. You tell that to a fireman. He'll probably say, uh, that's not how we do it. We fight fire with, with a hose <laughs> and water, sometimes chemicals, right? We don't pour gasoline on fires, not normally. But not every Christian does that. We're to overcome evil with good. And so someone's doing evil to you, find a way to do something nice for them. Now, you don't have to go way, way out of your way and mortgage your house and buy them a yacht and a trip around the world or something. You don't have to do that. But uh, you could give them a thank you card. You could bring them in a, 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 a coffee and a donut or something first thing in the morning. And you say, oh, wow, what are they? They'll, they'll suspect something. They'll think I'm trying to butter them up. No, all you got to do is listen. You say, listen, I'm sorry we've had our disagreements, but this is a peace offering. And I hope you take it, you know, in, in the spirit of, of love in which it's offered. 
And uh, that's one good way to overcome evil with good. There are many ways to do that, but to overcome evil with good. Remember Mrs. White and I, many, many, now many years ago, we had um, someone do something really bad to us. And so we knew that if we let it go, if we didn't do anything, it would eat us up. And we wouldn't be able to sleep right that night. So what we did was we went to the flower shop and we bought a beautiful bouquet of flowers and we signed the card from a secret admirer and we had it sent to this person's house. And it wouldn't take genius to figure out who sent them. We didn't sign it. But, uh, you know, we never heard anything more from that person after that. We tried our best to overcome evil with good. Now, it cost us a few bucks out of our pocket. But boy, we slept good that night. Didn't, what that person did just didn't bother us after that. So that was, that was one way. There's many ways to overcome evil with good. So back to um, Romans and, and chapter 12. We're to sweeten up our souls. Follow peace with all men. We will never win them to Christ as long as we're fighting against them. As long as we're paying them back with what they gave us. We will never be able to influence them with the gospel. Never. So Paul writes here, follow peace with all men and holiness. Now, when you talk about holiness, now you're bringing God into the picture. It's one thing to follow peace, but it's something else to follow peace and holiness. As I say, when you follow holiness, you're going to be following God. You're going to walk with God and you're going to try and bring him into the picture. Do you remember learning Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? How many know those two verses? Raise your hand. Okay, so if you know them, say them out loud with me. No, that's Romans 8.28. That's a good one. But that's Romans 8.28. <laughs> that's a good one too. How does Proverbs 3, 5 to 6? Trust, hmm, what? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him. And he shall direct thy paths. Right. So in all our ways, we are to bring him into the picture. We're to acknowledge him. And so that's very important here when we're going to follow holiness. God is going to be brought into the picture. Do you bring God into the picture with you when you go into work? I don't mean that you have to uh, take in a, a recording device and set speakers up on your desk and play, you know, last Sunday's sermon right full blast. I don't mean that at all. In fact, you'd probably get yourself reprimanded if you did that. But uh, do you bring God into the picture? What some people do, if they're, if they're the company, I suppose, uh, doesn't have a ruling against it, is they'll bring in a, a Bible and set that on their desk. That's one way to bring God into the picture. Another simple way to bring God into the picture is wear your soul winner's pin. That's another way to bring God into the picture. All it takes is one person at work to ask what that pin is for. And then you just simply say, oh, my church gave that to me uh, as an award for caring for the spiritual needs of people. Tell me, do you have any interest in spiritual things? And they might say no and walk away. doesn't matter what they say. They're going to be a soul winner for you. Now, they're going to be your salesman. And they're going to go around to everyone in that company and they're going to let them know that there's something weird about you. There's something religious about you. Hey, just for fun, go ask them what that pin means. 
Oh, I'm not. You do. No, no, not me. You do. Okay, well, we'll get the new guy to do it. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't matter, you see, because we're letting our light shine in all our ways acknowledge him. And we're to let our good works so, you know, to be seen before men that they may glorify our Father, which is in heaven. So it does take a little bit of uh, sanctified wisdom, but uh, absolutely walk with God. Now, he, he says here, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, holiness only comes through your relationship with Jesus Christ. Unsaved people are not holy. I hope we all know that. It's no way they cannot be holy. Why? Because they're dead in sin and trespasses. An unsaved man, an unsaved woman, has no holiness before God. Zip. Danada. Nothing. Only saved people can have holiness with God. But not all saved people are living a holy life before God. You see? But the only way it's even possible is through our connection with Jesus Christ. That's why your most important personal relationship in all the world is not with your husband, not with your wife, not with your mother, not with your father, not with your son, not with your daughter, not with your brother, not with your sister, not with your aunt, not with your uncle, not with your grandma, not with your grandpa, with no human being on earth. Your greatest by far relationship with any person is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your greatest, greatest relationship. Do not put someone above Jesus. You are committing idolatry if you do that. You are making the biggest mistake in your life if you put even the dearest soul on earth in the place where only Jesus should be. He needs to be first and foremost in your life. If you want to be a good husband, if you want to be a good wife, keep Jesus Christ absolutely first in your life. If you want to be a good parent or a good son or daughter, keep Jesus Christ first and foremost in your life. If you want to be a good employee or a good employer, Keep Jesus Christ first and foremost in your life. He is the number one, numero uno, without exception. The top, top, top priority is your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, the only thing that will affect that relationship negatively is your sin. That's it. Your sin. Now, he's not going to negatively affect the relationship, but we will negatively affect the relationship because of our sin. He doesn't sin. We're the ones that do too much of it. And if any man say he has no sin, right? All we got to do is go to 1 John chapter 1 and read all about it. You know, he's deceived or he's deceiving. Well, we are to sweeten up our souls and we're told here to follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is what makes us holy in the eyes of God. Because why? Because we're in Jesus and Jesus is holy. Now, maybe you've heard of um, a kind of a theological camp, theological movement. It's called the holiness movement. This goes back a couple of hundred years at least. And uh, Christians got on this bandwagon and what they, what they started, and it still continues today, is that they get saved by grace through faith, repenting of their sins and trusting Christ as their savior, they get saved. But to stay saved, they have to stay holy. And when they stop being holy, they lose their salvation. That's the holiness movement. It has resulted in the Methodist church, the Salvation Army, 
the Pentecostals. The Charismatics are an outgrowth of the Pentecostals. And there's a couple of others as well. But those are the main ones. And they all believe you can lose your salvation. They believe in what's called the holiness movement. That they have to maintain holiness in order to maintain salvation. That's their belief. We've had people like that come and leave our church. And they come because they love our singing. They, they love the friendliness of our people. But they leave because they, they're afraid, you know, of some sin. That we're not a perfect church or something. And so they're always maybe looking around for a perfect church. And so uh, we've had them come. We've had them go. That's a shame, you know, because there is no perfect church. Only heaven's perfect. But this verse is what they base some of their belief on. And the way they read it is follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So if you're not, if you don't have holiness, you'll never see the Lord. Well, number one, Paul says to follow it. You know, we're going to be all our lives trying to attain it and reach it. But we can follow it. We can follow it. But number two, that's not the context he's speaking of. He's speaking of here um, that the only ones that are going to see the Lord are those that are holy in Christ Jesus. That's, that's it. So point number one is strengthen up your limbs. Point number two, straighten up your paths. Point number three, sweeten up your souls. And point number four, sober up your vision. Sober up your vision. Now again, I remind you that he, he's giving us this sermon, as it will, right on the heels of of his talk about God's chastening his children. If you're here tonight and you're absolutely saved, born again, no question about it, no doubt about it, you're saved, you're going to experience God's chastening in your life. You're going to experience the persecution of the world and the devil. You say, well, wait a minute, we're not living back in the first century where they'd throw us to the lions. No, we're not. The devil doesn't always throw Christians to the lions. Oh, wait a minute. We're not living in parts of the world where they, they practice, you know, voodooism and they, they'll, you know, the witches and warlocks will chase you down the street, you know, with a spear. No, the devil doesn't always use the, uh, the threats of uh, witches and warlocks and voodooism. But I tell you what, here in North America and specifically in Canada, he uses a lot of fear in people's lives. And it all, a lot of it has to do with money and wealth. People are so tied into that and they're so scared, you know, boy, I'll lose my job. Oh, I'll lose my life. No, you won't. All you'll lose is a job and maybe you'll lose a crummy employer and, you know, maybe God will provide you another job. It'll be a great employer. You see, the truth is God is the one who gives jobs, just like God is the one who gives babies. God is the one who gives cars and houses Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. And if yours is not a good gift, and if yours is not a perfect gift, it didn't come from God. Maybe it came from the devil. I wouldn't want to go and work for the devil. I wouldn't, even if he offered me a million dollars a year, I wouldn't want to work for the devil. That's not a good gift. That's not a perfect gift. I wouldn't want to live my life for the devil or the world or the flesh. Even it offered me all the money the world has to offer. That's not worth it. I know God's going to meet my needs. Doesn't matter what happens to me. Supposing that I, I was in an accident and I got laid up or something and, and you folk had to find yourself another pastor and I'm laid up or something at home or, you know, severely bashed up. Say, so what are we going to do for money? 
The Lord knows. God knows. And he, he's got it all planned and all worked out. And brother, that's where Romans 8.28 really hits home, doesn't it? And we don't have to worry because God knows the end from the beginning and he's got our steps. As long as we follow the right path. See? Just keep following the right path. That what can the devil do? Oh, he can scare us. But you see, the devil's bigger than, uh, sorry, God is bigger than the devil. So we need to uh, sober up our vision. Verse 15, he says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now, when he says to look diligently, the word diligent means a strict and careful attention to making sure you do it right. That's what diligent means. Strict and careful attention to make sure you do it right. We want the children to do their homework diligently. We don't want them just to fire off anything, you know. Some people go in for a test. I, I heard this from a, a guy who was there at the time. So I'm getting this, what do, you, what do you call it, secondhand, is it? But years ago, there was a guy sitting in an office downtown talking to his buddy, and it was at one of the driver's uh, um, examination play where you go in and you write your test. This is you know, years ago before the technology. You had to actually do a you know, written test of these checks, yes and no, that sort of thing, to get your driver's license. This guy had come in. He couldn't speak any English, but he came in to get his driver's license. He couldn't read what was on the paper, but he was told he had to check yes and no, yes and no. So he went down the page and just started randomly checking yeses and nos. He didn't understand any of the questions. He wanted to get his driver's license so he could drive, you know, a 3,000 pound chunk of metal at high speeds down crowded city streets. And so he took the paper when he finished and went and handed it in. Now, the examiner was the friend of the man that was there. I heard this from the man that was there. This was a few years ago. And the man that was there said that his friend, the examiner, looked it over and says, no, 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 it's not right, not right, go do it again. So the man who couldn't speak English, new to the country, went back and did it again and started to, you know, do some other yeses and nos, yes and nos. He brought it back and showed it to the examiner. No, that's not right, no, go back and do it again. And this went on four or five times until the man, by some stroke of luck, managed to get more trues than falses. And he handed it in. The examiner says, yeah, that's right. You got enough. Stamp, stamp. There's your license, sir. Wow. Wouldn't you love to drive in the car with that guy, huh? A guy who doesn't know anything of the, uh, you know, the, the rules of the road. No, we want someone, if they're going to drive a car, we want someone to, to take their test and their training diligently, Right? You go in to the, see the doctor. You go into the emergency room and see a doctor. Don't you, don't you think, don't you hope that the doctor who's looking you over knows what he or she is doing? You'd hope so, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? That's not a hard question, folks. Yeah? Yeah. You know, if the doctor came to you and they'd never been to medical school and they just walked in and put on a uniform and a stethoscope and walked up to you and said, now what's your trouble? You'd, you'd say, you, <laughs> you're my trouble. Get out of here and get a real doctor. Give me someone who's studied diligently. And we're told here in Paul's fourth point of his sermon on Christian living, 
looking diligently. And that's a point in which a lot of us fall apart because we don't, number one, want to. And number two, we don't see the need to. Well, we just kind of drift along. Everything seems all right. Hey, we're still alive. No one's shot at us yet. So everything must be okay. And we don't realize the damage we're doing. And so looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now there's two ways you can fail from the grace of God. Primarily, number one is grace for salvation. That's the most important. And that's the biggest failure that many men and women will do is they'll, they'll gloss over the grace of salvation. And they'll think, well, I'm pretty good. God wouldn't throw someone like me into hell. I've never murdered anyone. I'm a nice person. I, I'm, I'm a good employee. I sing the hymns at church. I come sometimes more faithfully than some of the others in church. God would never throw me into hell. person like that is going to miss out on the most important grace, the grace for salvation. They're going to just assume that because of their goodness, God will say, all right, come on in, which is not the case. Because there's only one way to get to heaven, right? It has nothing to do with our good works. It's through Jesus Christ. And if we don't go through him, we don't go to heaven. And say, how do we get to, to Jesus? How do we get through Jesus? We have to understand the consequences of our sinful life. We have to understand that even though we've never pulled the trigger, we've never murdered anyone. We've never robbed any banks. There's still plenty, plenty of sin in us. Remember, it only took one sin of disobedience to get Adam and Eve booted out of the garden. And you and I, we've done that 10 times a thousand. We've done that. One little lie is all it takes. Oh, we've passed that years ago. We were just children when we first passed that one. And so the point being is that the grace for salvation, it's through Christ. See, Christ said, I am the door. There's one, one door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? Christ is the door, and we have to come through him. So that's the grace for salvation. I think that's probably the one that Paul is referring to. But secondly, there's the grace for Christian living. The grace for Christian living, which, ladies and gentlemen, will make or break your life here on earth. If you do not tap into God's grace for living here on earth, your life will be a shipwreck. It can't be anything but. So he says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you. You say, what is bitterness? Bitterness is that, that acid taste in the, in the throat. Whenever you've been sick and you've, uh, you've had to vomit, You've had that horrible taste in the back of your, your throat, in your mouth. That's this uh, uh, acidic uh, taste, and that's what bitterness is. The bitterness spoken of here is that, that unpleasant acid taste in the mouth, and it speaks of a horrible experience maybe that you've had with someone. And every time you think of that person, you have horrible memories of that person and that experience. And that is bitterness. These are all offenses that have been held on to. They've not been forgiven. You say, I can't forgive him. I can't forgive her. No, maybe you can't, but Jesus can. Well, then let him forgive. He will when you, in his power, by faith, do it. Uh, it's very important that we learn that lesson. That as long as we hold on to an offense... You see, for example, here's a man and he offends me. He says something horrible to me. 
he uh, uh, calls me a liar or something or says something horrible about my wife or my children, some, some horrible thing. And ooh, that, that offends me. And so I say, get out of here, you vagabond. And so he goes and I'm thinking, oh, that wretch. Oh, that miserable one. How could he say such a rotten thing? Boy, that's not right. That's not right at all. I go home and I tell my wife, that rotten guy, here's what he said and here's what he did. Now she's all upset and everything. She's upset and she can't sleep. She can't eat because of what this, this guy has said. And then uh, maybe our children come around and say, what's wrong? What's wrong? And we tell them, well, we didn't want you to know this. But, and then we dump on them all of the, the acid taste and acid experience. And now they hate the guy's guts as well. You see what it's, what's happened here. The bitterness that started in me has now affected my wife, has now affected our children. And it doesn't stop there. It will affect other people. Because someone, someone's talking about being offended. Oh, hey, let me tell you something about being offended. I know what it's like to be offended. And I tell them all about this guy. And now I poison their hearts toward that guy too. Now with that in mind, look at this again. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up, in, springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You see, we have bitterness. It comes from unresolved conflicts or offenses. Let's say that. Offenses that have never been given over to Jesus. You've never cast those cares upon him. You've not done that. You've held on to them. And when you hang on to any hard experience, if it's not bitter now, it will become bitter. It's like fruit in a bowl. After a while, it starts to go funny. And then it gets kind of moldy and the fruit flies and it can stink and so on. It can be a real hard mess. And uh, that's what happens with uh, anger and offenses. It doesn't take long. They can turn into bitterness. That's why by faith you've got to get rid of those things. Tonight, if you're upset with anyone in the world, if I were to ask you, or better yet, if God were to ask you, is there anyone in the entire world, in the entire planet, that you have an offense with. They've never come to you and asked forgiveness. You've never forgiven them. It's just kind of this rawness there. Is there anyone in the world like that? And if you can answer yes, or you have to answer yes to that question, then you've got inside you something that's holding you back. It's killing you. And we have to look diligently for things like that. Now, sometimes that bitterness is toward our own mother, our own father. We feel that they've offended us somehow or let us down or hurt us in life. And we grow up into adults and we've buried that bitterness. And we're pleasant to them. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. But inside, you know, it's I'll never trust you. I'll never believe a word you say. Uh, it's your birthday here. You know, I'm doing my duty. But there's no great joy and love. There's no closeness and bond of affection that God has meant for family. It's not there. Maybe it's a bitterness against a brother or a sister your own sister, your own brother. Maybe it's even against your own son or your own daughter. Maybe they've lived a life that's brought you shame and you're so angry now, you're bitter at them. And that will definitely just destroy the container that, it's held, that, that, that holds the bitterness. That's the thing about bitterness. It destroys the container that it's in. <laughs> crazy, eh? There's no container that will not be destroyed by bitterness. It's crazy. But if there's anyone in the world tonight that uh, you have this rawness, this bitter experience, you know, when, when their name uh, comes to mind or their face comes to mind, right away it's, 
Ah, that's the one. That's a person you cannot seem to be able to draw close to. Say, what do I do? What do I do? By faith, beloved. You don't feel like it. You don't want to. But by faith, you say, Jesus, I forgive them. Jesus, they owe me. They owe me an explanation. They owe me an apology. But I release that so they don't owe it to me anymore. Or you say, oh, well, how can that fix it? How can that change what happened? It won't ever change what happened, but it'll change how you respond to it. And so if you keep responding with bitterness, there's no way you can grow in the Lord. The devil's got you on the floor. His foot is on your chest. Well, that doesn't sound very good, but that's about the size of it. But when you by faith say, Lord, help me, help thou my unbelief. I want to forgive this person. I don't want to be angry anymore. I don't want to hold on to bitterness anymore. Lord, I give it to you. I give him, I give her into your hands. Take the burden that's too much for me. Lord, by faith, I forgive them as if it never happened, Lord. They don't owe me a thing. Lord, when I think of how I've offended you, I've offended you a hundred times, a thousand times more than that person's ever offended me. And you've forgiven me all of my sin. That's how you do it. You do it by faith. And when you do that, all of a sudden, the devil's foot is off your chest. The devil can't get a hold on you anymore because you're as free as a bird. You've sprouted wings. Yea, they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. Remember that? Well, it could be the bitterness is holding you down. Because he goes on here and he says, under point number four, sobering up your vision here. He says at the very end, and thereby many be defiled. The word defile, listen to this. The word defile means to pollute by trampling under feet. That's what it means. To pollute by trampling under feet. Supposing that someone worked hard and prepared a beautiful dinner for you. And you took that dinner and you threw it on the floor and you stepped on it. You see, you'd be defiling it. You'd be polluting the dinner by trampling it underfoot. Now, it's possible that that dinner or some of the dinner could be cleaned up and, and reused, but it's damaged goods, isn't it? You see, this is what happens to people when they're around us and we're bitter. Our bitterness defiles them. It'll poison their heart and poison their mind toward what that guy did to me. And now they can become damaged goods. Do you want that for your son or daughter? Do you want your husband or wife to be damaged goods? Do you want any of your family? Do you want any of your friends to be damaged goods? I sure don't. You know, it was um, Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? And God came to Cain and says, where's your brother? And you remember what Cain said to God? What did he say? He, he answered God with a question. Do you remember the question? What was the question? Say it again. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You have influence on your brother. Right? You have the blessing of having your brother in close proximity so yeah, you're your brother's keeper. And guess what? He's your keeper too. We watch out for one for another. That's what we're supposed to do. But bitterness will trample underfoot is what, is what it'll do. So 
here to, to damage, uh, to, to pollute by trampling underfoot will result either in damaged but still usable goods or it'll result in damaged and beyond repair or redemption. A person's bitterness toward God can actually sour someone else's desire for God. If a parent has a lot of bitterness, there's a good chance that their daughter or their son will be will pick that up and won't be interested in God. Can you imagine if I as a pastor held a bitterness in my heart for every person who's ever offended me? I've been in ministry now 37 years. I've had a lot of people take shots at me. You know, so much in my early years and boy it really hurt. I didn't know what was happening. Till I found out that when you're in the ministry, you're the devil's target. And he'll bring sometimes people in just to shoot arrows at you. That happens. So I've learned that and I've learned to keep the armor on. So some of the things bounce off. When I come to church without a piece of armor on, oh, I, I, I'm taking a chance. You know, the fiery dart can find me. But I've had so many people, so many, many people offend me. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have fallen for the devil's lie. I have held on to the offenses and not cast them into the Lord like I should have. But I'm telling you, I've lost every time. But can you imagine if I as a pastor never gave anything over to God? I just held on to all of the bitterness, all of the offenses, all of the horrible things done to me. I, I dare say that none of my children would be saved. None of my children would want to have anything to do with God because they'd look upon me and they'd look upon, you know, the, the, the churches and so on. And they'd say, oh, those churches are horrible people filled with horrible people. All they want to do is hurt my daddy. I'm never going to church. I don't want anything to do with God. That would be the result. And I'll tell you something that sadly is the result in some pastor's homes. Now, I'm not trying to set myself up as, as a holier than thou because I'm a man full of flaws I got my problems. I know that. I'm painfully aware of that. But I have to be honest with the scriptures, right? Because if you're going to walk the right path, we said it earlier, it takes honesty with the scriptures and it takes a decision of the will. And so here he talks about defiling others. So verse 16, he starts talking about someone that's, that's very interesting, very interesting guy in the Old Testament. He says, lest there be any fornicator. Now, we're not going to talk about fornication because I think we all know what that is. But I find it amazing how often physical fornication and physical adultery are used in the Bible to illustrate spiritual fornication and spiritual adultery toward God. I'm amazed how often those two are set up to parallel. Spiritual, the spiritual fornicator does things they should not do with their spiritual life and with the things of God. That's what the spiritual fornicator does. It's illustrated by the following word. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. The word profane literally means outside of church or outside the temple. That's what the word means. It means things that you do in the street you'd never do in the house of the Lord. That's what profane means, is outside of the church. Sometimes if there's a quarrel between people in, in the church, maybe the, the pastor, the father, the rector, the minister, whatever will go up and say, listen, 
Take that argument out of the church. Take that outside of the church. It doesn't belong in here. Take it out there. And that's the whole concept of profane. It means outside of the temple or outside of the church. It means the kind of thing that people do in the street they'd never do in church. The kind of thing that people say, their speech, their bad habits that they would never do in church. That's what the word profane means. So, lest there be uh, any fornicator or profane person, and a spiritually profane person will not treat the things of God with the proper love and respect. And we're given an illustration. What's his name? Esau. Remember him? Who was Esau? Whose brother? Jacob's brother. That's right. Now, when Rebekah, the mother, was pregnant with the two boys in her, in her tummy, and she was getting great with twins, these, uh, these babies inside her were having a war. Remember reading about that? There was a huge struggle going on. So much so that Rebecca thought, what is going on? And she went to God and asked God, what is happening to me? What is going on? And God answered her and told her, there are two nations in thy womb. And then he said, there's a stronger one. And the stronger one will end up serving the weaker one. And we all understand what that means later in life. But this is the answer God told her. And so she had this war going on inside her. And when it came time to deliver the children, one of them came out red and hairy. What was his name? Esau. Right. Now, the, the Hebrew word behind Esau means rough. As in uh, rough handling. Not gentle. Rough handling. It's quite possible that when Esau was born, it was a tough delivery. But also don't forget, there was war going on inside her tummy. So possibly when Esau came out, that's why one of the reasons maybe why he was red is because all of the struggle he was having against his brother. Anyhow, he comes out red. So they call him Esau, meaning rough, as in roughly handled. Now Esau grows up to be a man. What kind of man do you think he was? Kind of a rough kind of a guy is what he was. Uh, the redness had long gone, but the roughness just got worse. He was that kind of guy. So this is our friend uh, Esau. Esau grew to be a rough type of person, and he was rough with the things of God. Now look at what we just read lest there be any fornicator or profane person. A profane person will be rough with the things of God. They will not respect the things of God. So Esau is named here. And then it says, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now that's what spiritually profane people do. The spiritual, the things of God are always done by faith. You cannot serve God by sight. It has to be by faith. The just shall live by faith. We brought that out last Sunday. Spiritually profane people will be quick to trade spiritual things for worldly things. Because worldly things are worth more to them than spiritual things. Now I'm reminded of a story about two brothers. One was about three years old and the other was about seven years old. 
And the seven-year-old was a little bit of a clever devil. And he went up to his uh, little three-year-old brother who had a dime. Now, you know what a dime is, a 10-cent piece, a dime. And the seven-year-old took a nickel. And you know, a nickel is much bigger than a dime. You know that. And his brother had a dime, was given to him, I think, for his birthday. And so the seven-year-old went up to him and said to him, Look, I have a big coin, and you just have a little coin. But I'm your big brother, and I, I like you. I will trade you my big coin for your little coin. And the little boy went, Okay, and he traded like that. Huh. You know, the uh, profane people of this world are quick to trade their spiritual for the worldly because the worldly means more to them than the spiritual. That's why they're quick to do that kind of thing. You say, well, how, how does that play out? How is it that they trade spiritual for worldly? They will trade faithful church attendance. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here tonight. Because here you are faithful in church here. I know that. But spiritually profane people are quick to trade faithful church attendance for the promise of more money if they'll voluntarily work overtime on Sundays and Wednesdays. The boss says, listen, we're going to pay time and a half. And no one puts their hand up. All right, we'll pay double time. And profane people are quick to point out, man, I'm going to be rolling in dough. They won't see me at church for a while, but boy, I'm going to have the bucks. That's spiritual profanity is what that is. Taking the things of God that are meant to be accepted by faith and trading them freely for things that can only be seen. That's one way they do it. Another way that they do it is they trade their early morning Bible reading and prayer time for staying up way too late the night before. Oh, I'm watching this movie. Ah, it's going to take me till about 1.30. I'll never get up in the morning. Oh, well, it's only one, one day. I can, I can go without Bible and prayer for one day. Problem is that'll happen the next night and the next night and the next night. And before you know it, a whole week's gone by. And remember, one week, no, seven days without prayer makes one week. That's it. <laughs> I wish I'd invented that saying. That's a good one. I, I like that one. Uh, something else they'll do is they'll trade their tithes and their faith promise for missions. They'll trade it for new car payments. They'll trade it for furniture, new furniture. They'll trade it for expensive vacations. If Esau were alive today, those are just some of the things that he would do. Why? Because he was a spiritual fornicator. You say, man, that's hard to hear. I know it, beloved. I know it. Because the scripture preaches to my heart too. We finish here in verse 17. This is the sad ending of Esau. For ye know how that afterward. Now bear this in mind that Esau, when he sold his birthright to his brother, he was only about 20 or 25 years old when that happened. But 40 years went by. That's what it means afterward. For ye know that afterward, that's when Esau went through 40 years of life, he's now 60, 65 years of age when his brother got the birthright. When he would have inherited the blessing, that's the day of receiving God's rewards. It's finally come. He was rejected. You know, Esau was not rejected when he was 65. Esau was rejected when he was 25, when he first sold out the spiritual things. 
That's when he was rejected. And he just didn't realize it until 40 years later. And he came face to face. He's a reject. He's 40 years too late. Uh, it says, for, for ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance. And I just want you to understand what this means. Esau was not used to repenting. When it says he found no place of repentance, it's because he couldn't find any place. He was not a repenter. He was not used to repenting. He was a rough type of guy who thought that repenting was sissy. And he wasn't going to be a sissy like others, like maybe his brother Jacob was a sissy. He was a rough, tough man's man. He was not going to repent because repenting is sissy. He would never have gone forward on an invitation at church because he wasn't interested in that. And so when he now realized what he had lost when he's in front of his father, Isaac, and his father's over 100, and he's now 65 or something, and he realizes in front of his father what he lost, he tried to act repentant. But it was just an act. It wasn't repentance at all at all. He didn't know where to look for repentance. He didn't know how to repent. Now you compare that with King David, when after his sin with Bathsheba, God used a preacher to tell him about his sin. How did David respond? David went down on his face and David found repentance and God forgave him. How did David do that? Because David was experienced in repenting. As a Christian, you need to be experienced in repenting. It must be a familiar word with you. It was out of Esau's vocabulary. He never understood it. And you see the very end of verse 17. Though he sought it carefully with tears. And you know this, that tears don't always come from the heart. Sometimes they only come from the eyes. I wonder, did Esau somehow think he could get his father uh, to reverse the decision if he just cried enough? Because I'm sure his father never saw Esau cry before. This was something brand new. Maybe. But for sure Esau's tears were like the thief who cries in front of a judge. Not because he's sorry for what he's done. But he's sorry he got caught. That's why he's sorry. Not for what he's done. Take note please. Sorrow is not the same as repentance. Now we have to finish up here. Let's make an application of Paul's four-point sermon on Christian living for our lives. As Christians, we need to realize that Satan is out to destroy our lives. He's out to destroy our effectiveness for God. The devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Never forget, you or I could be next on his list. Uh, the devil is trying to keep our eyes focused on the things of this world more than on the blessings of God and the rewards of heaven. Let's think down the road to when we'll stand before God one day in heaven and give account of our lives. In the light of pleasing God and in the light of the joy of fantastic rewards in heaven, 
just how deeply do we want to get involved with this world anyhow? And so let's not throw away golden opportunities like Esau did. Let's not throw away golden opportunities that God gives us here on earth. Let's pray.